inspiring and both thrill and inspiring your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for pressing play on today's episode. James Newcomb coming into your earballs. And we have a delightful conversation for you today with the great composer, Tony Plogue. This is something that I recorded, I think, in 2020, if I recall correctly. But uh, here I am, just got back into the United States from Vietnam last week. And this episode is a little bit later than the normal publishing. I usually like to have them on Mondays, but here it is on Thursday. And just with being busy, uh, getting acclimated to my new surroundings and helping my wife get situated in completely new surroundings for her, it's just been that that you just have to have your priorities. But here we are publishing our episode today, and it's it's a good one. Uh, Mr. Plogue is a wonderful, wonderful man. And we just had a delightful time talking about trumpet, music, life, and how the three often intersect and just make things more beautiful than when than before we began doing whatever we were doing, be it trumpet music or life. So it's just a lovely conversation, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So without a further ado, here's my chat with Tony Plogue. My guest today is located in Freiburg, Germany, although he is born and raised as an American. We can find him on anthonyplogue.com, and uh, you probably know that name from some of the wonderful brass quintet and solo trumpet and solo brass uh, compositions that he's written under the pen name of Tony Plogue, and uh, welcome to the show, Tony Plogue. Thank you. Great to be back. Featured you on The Secrets of the Musical Mind last summer, and um, had a great time talking about that, but now we're just going to talk a little bit just going to talk story. Not exactly sure where this conversation is going to go, but let's just make sure that it stays interesting. But uh, you just finished a five-week tour of the United States, going all over, teaching everywhere. Get us up to speed. What uh, what went down here in the U.S.? Well, the first week I was actually in the woodlands, and um, I was taking care of my father-in-law, um, my wife's sister. My sister-in-law and her husband uh, went out of town for a week, so I was just taking care of him. Um, he's laid up right now, so I was uh, cooking meals and doing things like that. And then I went to Nashville, and um, in Nashville I taught at uh, Vanderbilt, did a master class at Vanderbilt, the Blair School of Music, and then um, Tennessee Tech uh, for Rachel Rodriguez. Um, and then uh, my friend, my very good friend, Ron Kidd, lives in Nashville, and he's just about to retire and has built up a lot of vacation time. So he went with me for the next week, and we flew to New York, and um, on Monday, we had quite a schedule. On Monday, um, we were at Yale University with Alan Dean. Um, Tuesday, at Manhattan School of Music and had a wonderful meal with uh, Dave Jolly, the horn professor there. Dave and I had not seen each other for, I don't want, want to say, well, I would say there was maybe close to 50 years uh, when we were uh, young kids in Los Angeles. So it was great to see him. Uh, went to Curtis on Wednesday. Um, and had a great time with Dave Bilger, and his students are great. And then Juilliard on Thursday, um, and uh, had a lunch with David Krause, who I had never met before, and he's such a great guy, such a nice guy. Um, and then uh, did a class at Juilliard in the evening. Uh, Friday, went to New England, <laughs> and uh, did a, uh, sorry, went to Boston and did a class at the New England Conservatory, and um, 
that evening had a remarkable dinner with Jan Swafford, who's a wonderful biography. He's written biographies of um, Ives, Brahms, and Beethoven. Wow. And yeah, just have a fantastic writer, just a fantastic writer. And so I just decided to sort of go for it. And I wrote to him and I said that Ron and I both uh, read all of his books and said, we're fans of yours. Could we take you out to dinner? And he said, yeah, sure. So we had this great dinner with him. Uh, really, really fascinating. I'm great sorry, guy. what was that guy's name again? Jan, J-A-N, and Swafford, S-W-A-F-F-O-R-D. Yeah, just, I, it, boy, his books are great. The Brahms book, especially. They're all great, but the Brahms book is, is sensational. He likes the Ives, I think, the best, but the Brahms is, I think, is great. Um, and so, uh, so I did that on Friday, and then Saturday I taught at Boston University, um, following Monday at Hart College, and then um, did almost a week at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst for Eric Berlin, and then the last two weeks at Rochester, uh, in Rochester, at the Eastman School of Music for Jim Thompson, who's taking a sabbatical. So it was it was quite quite a long trip, and it was just it was a real adventure. So many great experiences, so many incredibly wonderful students who were not only really fine players, but just really nice and genuine and kind people. So it was a, it was a wonderful trip. What a whirlwind. So you must be glad to be home. Like, well, I'm, I'm very glad to be home. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things, I guess I'm really, really lucky because it was really great being there and it's great being back too. When you're in Germany, do you travel like that or do you just sort of stay no, I, in one I, place? I just stay here. I've got seven weeks now in Germany. Um, and uh, so, yeah, looking what, forward. What's, what's coming up after the seven weeks? Uh, then I go back to the United States. Uh, actually, I first go back to Texas because my son is a student at Texas Wesleyan. He's in his final semester, and he's there. If you can imagine this, he's there on a table tennis scholarship. And that <laughs> that uh, that team is the dominant team. They've won 13 of the last 14 uh, national championships. So this will be his na- uh, last um, real championship with the team. So I'm going to, in April that I start out. Uh, going to watch him play for about four days. Um, wow. And then go to the Crane School of Music. Um, I just finished a quintet that was written for the uh, uh, quintet at, at the Crane School of Music, Postam Quintet, and they're going to premiere it, and I'll have a three-day residency there. And then I go to Rowan College, um, uh, Rowan University, where I, I have a piece that I wrote um, that's a cantata, originally for orchestra, chorus, two sopranos, narrator and um and i think that's it yeah and uh based on uh, it's based on a on text written by women who have been victims of uh, sexual trafficking and prostitution and drug abuse and their recovery it's really a, a remarkable story so i'll be there for that and then i'm doing again about another two and a half weeks of master classes and then i go back to texas for jason's graduation so it seems like a, yeah yeah i know it seems like i'm pretty busy these days well I see guess. tony there's this thing called the internet that you're you can you can teach classes online. Are you aware of that? Oh, that's what I heard. Somebody told me about that. <laughs> <laughs> Featured prominently on the homepage of anthonyplogue.com is uh, teaching uh, via Skype, right. coaching, conducting. It looks like you have embraced that at least a little bit. Yes, yeah, I'm definitely uh, very very interested in that, um, and I really think that that can be the new paradigm uh, for the future for a, for a couple of reasons. For example, when I was a, a kid. Well, I wouldn't say a kid, but a student um, at UCLA and then, and then a professional. Uh, actually, I was a professional, a young professional playing in the San Antonio Symphony. Um, I flew to Cleveland to see my girlfriend, but also got a lesson with uh, Mr. Edelstein, 
And then oh, several wow. years later, I flew to Chicago and got a lesson with Mr. Herseth, uh, Adolf Herseth, uh, both of which were great. Had I had the opportunity to do an online lesson with either one of those, uh, and I certainly don't put myself in the same league as those two giants, but had I had the opportunity to do an online lesson with those people or other people, I would not have had to be in the same city or fly to the same city to get a lesson. And um, now I think people from around the world can take lessons uh, whenever they want to. So I think it's it's a, a marvelous opportunity. I think the technology is only going to get better. Who knows what the next 10 years are going to be like. Mm. Um, so, so it's imagine. something that I'm really interested in. I think I'm pursuing... <laughs> how would I put it, more, more wholeheartedly than, than other people. Because I know there's some people that are Skype teaching, uh, but they're doing that just to sort of either supplement their income or do a, do a little bit of teaching. But what I'd like to do with this is have two or three full days of teaching on Skype and then have the other uh, maybe four or five days uh, completely free for composition. So you're, ut- you're utilizing the Internet to really do what you believe you were put on this earth to do. <laughs> exactly what I was put on the earth for. Um, you still haven't figured that out yet? No, 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 I I think I never will. But I think uh, this is something that I I think in a way I, I've sort of come to realize that how much I really love teaching. If I'm working with students who are really interested, um, I've had uh, experiences at schools where some of the students were not interested and that's really hard work. You know, I've still Mm -hmm. tried to teach as well as I can, but that's really hard, hard work. Um, definitely going against the current. But for me, when I'm when I'm teaching people who are interested and engaged, it's it's just so much fun. And that was what was so great about this last tour was that that people were so um, involved and 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 learned so quickly and everything. So online teaching, if somebody signs up for an, a lesson online, obviously they're they're interested. And they don't have to. Uh, the interesting thing is they don't have to be a good player. They can be a comeback player or an amateur player in a brass band or. Um, and of course, I'll be doing uh, larger groups, two brass groups, brass quintets, brass ensembles. Eventually, I want to work up to wind ensembles. There's this guy. His name is Mike Johnston. He's a drummer located in California and. Mm-hmm. Um, you might want to check this guy out because he has uh, built up an uh, online learning empire. It's mikeslessons.com. I'm right on the website right now. But he makes, um, what he does is he just records videos and then people can pay X amount, of, X amount of dollars per month for, and they just get access to all of his videos. Mm-hmm. And so he just makes videos on his time. And I don't, I think he puts on camps. I don't know the entire story. He puts on a couple of camps every year, but like he doesn't do one-on-one instruction. Mm-hmm. But just this online platform makes him six figures a month. You're kidding. I mean, okay. this, this is uh, 10 years in the making. And the, the cool thing about it is that he just started, if I understand the story correctly, he just started um, just putting videos on YouTube that he wanted mm-hmm. that he didn't want to throw away. And he just wanted to preserve them, and people found them and asked him for more, or asked for like, "How do I do this? How do I do that?" And years and years later, it's this huge, huge thing, and he's doing really, really well with it. Well, that's an amazing story. But the the thing is that it just started like he didn't try to make it happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He didn't say, "I'm going to start an online drum lesson empire." It just started very humbly, and he's just kind of met a need with it yeah so that's great i mean i think that's the most important too important thing as well and that is to meet a need so you focus on i guess the college level and above when you're teaching 
Or do, uh, do, you, do you teach high schools or? What? Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyone? Fact, <laughs> anyone. Yeah, basically anyone, as long as they're interested. They don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be what we would call uh, good. Until like about 10 years ago, and it took me a long time to catch on, I used to think that a good student was somebody who was a good player. But that's mm. not necessarily the case. A good student is somebody who's really interested and is trying to learn. Um, I've had some very good players who were not good students. Yeah. And even though they played very well, it was not so much fun. I've had some other players who really had some challenges, but they were really fun to teach because they were so involved. And so for this online program, uh, you can be a beginner. You can be um, an orchestral player who's going for an audition. You know, the range, okay. I think, will, will be quite wide. Mention that because I have, a, I have a few students here in North Carolina, and I have one. He's a freshman in high school, mm-hmm. and he just he struggles mightily. He, he cannot play above... With any regularity, you can't play above like a middle E, totally falling apart. Sometimes on his best day, he can maybe hit a G, but that's like twice and then he's done. And he's just struggling. I've been working with him for, I guess, about three months now. But the thing that really impresses about me about this kid is that he just is not going to quit. He's so determined. As long as he's got the determination, I've got the, I've got time for someone like that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And so he's made a lot of progress in three months, but um, as long you know, as long as he's got that motivation, I've got the time for him. My wife teaches Kumon, uh, K-U-M-O-N, which is a learning system. It's in the United States, but it's also in Germany, mm. and it's it's a system that teaches in Germany. It teaches mathematics and English, and basically you can start from the age of two, and you can go up to the age <laughs> of seventy if, if if you want to. They've been every time I go to to help her out if somebody's sick, and I go to 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 sub for somebody. I'm I'm so moved by by the work that she does, and um, there are some kids there who have some real learning problems and and of course there are kids that that quit the program because they don't have the discipline to stick with it but the kids that stick with it you can tell how it really changes their lives you know and and like your student for example even if he doesn't become a very good trumpet player the fact that he's sticking with it and and working with it and not giving up is going to benefit every area of his life and i think absolutely what i mean i've heard this from a number of psychologists that one of the worst things that can happen to you when you're young is if everything goes well, because then when you get in your 30s and you have your first failure, um, you're not equipped to, to deal with it. Um, and I think that's I think that's really important um, to be able to to find a, a problem and and work with it instead of giving up. Sort of my little tagline when I'm teaching lessons is um, probably 99% of kids in high school right now or middle school they're not going to be professional players. Yeah. Probably, probably the vast, vast majority are not going to play even beyond high school. Mm-hmm. They, might, they might play it in college because it, they, they like to do it, but the vast majority are not going to do it. And my, my attitude and sort of my selling point is, you know what? You're going to be a professional at something someday, and you may as well learn a professional approach to music. You know what I mean? That's, that's a great way to look at things. If you, I never thought about that. If you can learn a professional mentality and a professional mindset with the trumpet, then whatever profession you choose, you have a leg up on your peers. Yeah. Can I steal that from you? You can use it twice after. Just give me credit twice, and then it's yours. Okay. I'll I'll quote you. Actually, when I teach, I I quote a lot of other teachers quite often. Very few of the ideas that I have are my own. So I think that's sort of the way it works. All right. Well, it's it's pronounced Newcomb. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
And you're the guy that says, if at first you don't succeed, don't take up skydiving, right? That's me. Okay. <laughs> I'll, inc- I'll include that in the book. Save the whales, collect the whole set. How long have you been doing the online uh, uh, platform now? Is it, how is it going? Well, you know, I've given a, a couple of lessons like over over time, you know, for yeah. uh, for maybe a year or two. But I've really gotten this up and running just actually just started before I left for this tour. So it's just basically sort of getting underway right now. <clears throat> and I'm still trying to send out um, information on it and, and get the word out. Well, you need to you need to come up with a like a catchy title for it, like Tony's Lessons or something. OK, I'll <laughs> Tony's Tony's Trumpet Camp or something. Tony quotes Newcomb, maybe. <laughs> let's let's see if that domain is available. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll look for that. Somehow, to- I think it might be free. To- <laughs> <laughs> Some the owner of it may pay us to to take it off their hands. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. That's how that's how we could make a profit. We should go into business together. Tony's Trumpet Temple. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Good chops and a little bit of Buddhist philosophy. <laughs> Well, we have to talk about something here because people okay. are listening to this and they have to. Oh, okay. And we're 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 supposed to entertain them. Well, they're probably signed off by now, so I think it's they, just you and me. It's probably just you and me, maybe yeah. two other. I know of at least two that listen to this. So. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize you had two kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Tony's got a sense of humor oh, too. Sorry. Well, let's. T- I want to. I want to pick your brain a little bit about your composing because um, <clears throat> I've played extensively but i've played a few things that you've written and of course uh I, I love playing it and i haven't met anyone who doesn't love playing stuff that you've written although it it's a little bit um how would you say it it's not like pedestrian it's not uh it's a little more advanced to really be able to appreciate it you have to have kind of an advanced understanding of music shops and buddhist training i think is that the key yeah, no. Go well, I mean, what I'm I'll saying is that is that it's not you're not like Justin Bieber on the trumpet. You have to understand music and appreciate music a little bit to appreciate what you do. Well, yeah, I mean, I um, feel strongly about it. actually several things. Number one, as a composer, um, especially over the last maybe five to ten years, I'm really trying to get deeper and more substantial as a composer. So. Um, I'm not sure if I can do that with my writing, but I'm taking on larger themes, and hopefully that will help me. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I, I have a, an opera with a Holocaust theme. I have an opera about a drone operator having a mental breakdown. He kills a child. You have a cantata that I just mentioned about uh, these women who have been involved and have escaped from um, sexual trafficking and prostitution. I have a, a big oratorio about the first environmental battle in the United States, which was lost, actually. Yeah. Um, so, that I mean, that's one thing. I'm trying to get into deeper things. And then also, one thing that I felt really strongly about as a, as a player is that I think so much of, of uh, writing for brass tends to be really um, sort of technically oriented and showcases the player. Um, and I've written a couple of pieces that I think are, are humorous, like animal ditties or something like that. But I think what I'm trying to do in most of the pieces that I write for brass is to write with at least a certain amount of substance. And I don't want it to sound like I'm being arrogant or anything like that, but just that I'm trying to write just a flashy piece, but a piece that has some uh, 
amount of substance to it, and whether I succeed or fail, um, that at least that's what I'm trying for. In the summer of 2017, I conducted a series of interviews for a podcast that I called Secrets of the Musical Mind. My goal was to get into the heads of musicians who perform at an elite level and discover what makes them tick. I asked them about a time that they failed as a performer, what they do to prepare for a performance, how they've conquered stage fright, and much more. When it was all said and done, I had interviewed over 50 world-class performers sharing their insights on peak musical performance. Now, for a limited time, I want to share these interviews with you. Each interview is short, around 20 minutes in length, but jammed with valuable information that will help take your performance game to the next level. Best of all, the package is priced so that anyone can afford it. If you'd like to learn more about this amazing offer, then head over to secretsofthemusicalmind.com and let's win the battle with your mind and let the music flow. Like I said, you know, you can't, you're not just going to put on Tony Plogue and have, you know, that be the background music for dinner. You, you, there's a story behind it and you're very intentional with the, with, with your writing. So there's, what I'm saying is that there's just a, there's a point to it. It's not. It's not just there, just to be there. Oh right. Uh huh. Yeah. But you know, there are a lot of really fine composers today who who um, who write for brass, and I think their writing um, is is quite wonderful and and quite deep. Um, I don't know if you've interviewed David Sampson as an example. No. Boy, his it, it just gets yeah. It's just he was actually. I'm not sure if he still plays or not, but he was a trumpet player. Boy, the. the Actually, I have. He just gave me a couple of records, a couple of CDs. Boy, you can tell I'm in the past century. A couple of CDs when I saw him uh, when I was in New York that I have not yet listened to, and I can't wait. But the last thing that I heard was just marvelous. Was really great and very original, but also really substantial. So I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of great, great, um, wonderful composers now who are, who are making you know. A living Jim Stevenson. I don't know if you've interviewed him. Yes. I don't. Yeah, I've just met him, you know, once or twice. So, so we don't really have have that much of a relationship. But it's pretty admirable what he's done. You know, quit his his uh, with four children, quit his orchestral job and moved to to Chicago and has become a composer. You know, full time composer. That's that's really uh, admirable. It is another one that I like is Johan de May. Oh, he's from Holland, isn't he? He's from Holland, but he lives in New York now. Oh really? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I know the name, but but oh, is that the Lord of the Rings? The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so I heard I heard performance of that. Yeah, which is really really nice piece. Yeah, he's great. What I like what I like about what you do is that you know you're writing for a medium that's been around for centuries. Maybe the band not quite that not quite that long, brass quintet, even shorter. But you know you're writing for the same uh, <coughs> instrumentation that Mozart wrote for. Yeah, I mean, I've written some pieces, yeah, that definitely are for a, what would be called a classical orchestra, for sure. The thing about it is that, like, when Mozart was alive, <clears throat> and Brahms and all these guys, that was like that was like writing for the rock band of the day. The, the modern music, music is, well, now it's like disco and uh, electronic, this and that. When Mozart wrote what he wrote, that was for just... That's what everybody played. That was what everybody went to a concert. That's what they saw. It was an opera with an orchestra. And now you guys have a people who write in your medium. You have so much more competition. They don't just put on the orchestra mm-hmm. in their CD. They, they, they listen to Bruno Mars. The people listen to an orchestra. Yeah. It's, it's very, now it's like a niche um, sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the mainstream. So that's the thing is if you're going to be successful, you have to really nail down a niche. I guess. I mean, yeah, you know, but I think I think the most important thing is to do to try to do great work. And and mm-hmm. whether it be for for a format that's, let's say, like a standard classical format, like an opera or a, a chamber orchestra or a brass quintet, or whether it's something that's, let's say, more contemporary, I, I think I think it comes down ultimately, and I'm probably being a little bit too idealistic about this, but I think it comes down ultimately to the to the quality of the work. So, so for example, I've never written for electronics at all. Right, right. <clears throat> I'm not sure if I ever will or not. But on, I mentioned Dave Sampson. He has this piece, and I'm sorry that I forgot the title of it right now, but it's for two trumpets and electronics, and it is such a good piece. It is cool. so innovative, and it's modern, but it's um, listenable. If you say accessible or listenable, for some people that's a negative term. Uh, for me, I think that's, that's a positive term. Um, if you read, and anyway, it's accessible and, and listenable, but very original. Just to go on a rant about this thing about accessibility and, and whatever, if you read um, Shakespeare or Thomas Mann or Hermann Hesse or Ernest Hemingway or, or a great author, some are more difficult to get through than others, but they're still accessible. They, they wrote those books so they could be read. Um, and so um, I, I, I'm very much in favor of a piece that's accessible, as long as it has depth. <laughs> substance. David Sampson with a P. Yeah, S-A-M-P-S-O-N. David Sampson Composer.com. That sounds about right, I guess. Homage, serenade, stories, morning music. When you started um, composing, was it something that um, you just decided, I'm going to be a composer now? Or w- tell us the story behind you getting started. Who did? What did you write for? Was it? Did you write for the trumpet because you were familiar with it? Basically, what happened was when I was in my last year of college, I played in the brass quintet, the finest brass quintet, and I wrote a piece for this group. And a mentor of mine was William Schmidt, who's a composer and the publisher, founder of Western International Music. This piece was four movements long, less than four, four movements and less than four minutes long. Um, so, I mean, not much development in it, but we played it you know, several times and actually recorded it and Bill published it. And so that was the beginning. Uh, for me in terms of, of composition, but I would write a piece every couple of years, and, and that was it. When I was in college, I remember, actually, we were studying Brahms, I think, in a class, and I thought, why would anybody want to write music when they could play the trumpet? You know, I was such <laughs> a trumpet nerd at that time. So so eventually, I mean, it, it, I started doing a few more things for brass and, and a few larger things. I wrote an octet, and then I wrote a piece for wind ensemble, semi-dabbling in it, and then I had this experience in December of 1989, and I was in Berlin, and I was going to play a couple of uh, Christmas oratorios and a couple of concerts with uh, solo concerts with organ. And I had a free night, and the people that I was that were putting me up lived right across the street from the Deutsche Oper. And that night they were doing the ballet uh, Romeo and Juliet from Prokofiev, which is my one of my all-time favorite pieces. And I went to that concert, and um, it. I, it, I just thought, I've got to be a composer. And I still have the program that I wrote on, and I thought, even if I fail as a composer, I can say that my profession is the same as Prokofiev's. It was mm-hmm. that um, idealistic uh, a night, a euphoric a night for me. And that really, really changed things uh, quite quite drastically for me. And wow. so since then, I, I decided, okay, I'll give up the trumpet, and it took me basically um, 11 more years uh, because um, I, during that period I got married, had two children, and of course, have to provide for the family too. So, um, uh, yeah. So I, that was sort of how that got started. 
so it was like a, a long prog- uh, progression until I had this one moment, and then that really um, sort of changed my direction. Aha moment, watching yeah. oh, Romeo definitely. and Juliet yeah. uh-huh. for Kofiev. That's, yeah. that's a cool story. So you're, were, you, uh, were you in an uh, orchestra at that time in Germany? No, actually. What did, I- what did you do to bring home the bread? <laughs> well, I w- at that time I was still living actually in the United States. Oh, okay. uh, what happened was I, I was in. Um, I'll try and go this through this really quickly. But um, I, I met my wife in Salt Lake City on a blind date um, set up by Alan Dean, actually, um, and she had never been to Europe. So I wrote to some people about the possibility of maybe coming over and doing, um, you know, a two day master class or course or something like that. And one of the people that I wrote to was my good friend Boo Nielsen. Um, who was Hoken Hardenberger's uh, first teacher. And Boo played with the Malmö Symphony, and he said that the first trumpet player was alcoholic, and um, they were giving him a year off. Would I like to come play a year with the orchestra? Kathy and I talked about it, and by that time we were engaged. And so we moved to Sweden and lived there actually for two years. We got married in Sweden, went to Italy for a very short time, and the uh, job at the Musikhochschule in Freiburg came open, and I auditioned for that and got it. And um, We've been in Germany ever since. So it's sort of, a, uh, I guess, a circuitous route to get to where I am now. And it was really sort of lucky in that I, I just happened to write about, you know, wanting to have uh, maybe two or three days uh, of a course so that we could see Europe for a week or two. And we've been over here now for quite a long time. Yeah, probably going on 30 years. Yeah, just about. I think, well, it was 1992 that we, okay. that we came over. Yeah. About 25 yeah. years. Yeah, I know. It doesn't seem that long, but it has been. What was the progression like where you have this aha moment and you're like, okay, this is what I want to do. Uh, but, you know, being a composer <clears throat> is hard enough to, to make money as it is, let alone a, a brand new composer. You can't just say, I'm, this is what I'm going to do and just quit your job. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the process of sort of weaning yourself off the trumpet to the point where you could make a living off of your compositions. Well, okay, I, I have not, I did not wean myself off. Well, of the trumpet. you you weaned yourself off of the need to for the trumpet to provide your uh, sustenance. Well, sort of, sort of. What I did was was basically in, until I got the job teaching at the Musique Hochschule, most of my income, almost all of my income, was through the trumpet, chamber music, you know, playing in different groups, uh, doing solo concerts, and, and so forth. And then when I got the job in the Hochschule. Um, I think it was my second week um, of teaching at the Hochschule was when my daughter Kelsey was born. So that was pretty much right at the same time, and that changes things. So my main source of income then was playing, uh, was teaching at the Musique Hochschule, and I was still doing some playing. And I ended up playing, getting a uh, halftime contract with the Basel Symphony in Switzerland, which is only about forty-five minutes down the road. For um, that, how long did that? That was a three-year contract. And um, so that helped provide some income. But for, for the longest time, I taught at, this, at the Hochschule for 20 years. Um, and then when I retired, I ended up teaching at the uh, Music Academy, Academy in Oslo until, for four years until this past June. So I have not yet been able to, to make a living uh, completely as a composer. Oh, okay. And that's one of the, the things that this online teaching does is that uh, sort of keeps me teaching which is something I also really love to do. So you're definitely a portfolio career. Yeah, I guess a quite a varied career. It's like I can't hold down a job or something. Do you still play trumpet? Um, I warm up with students. 
Um, okay. I, I don't warm up with students. Occasionally, like during a lesson, occasionally I'll, if I'm, I'm trying to get a point across, I'll, I'll demonstrate something. Or occasionally if I see a student is doing something that's not working, I'll take a trumpet and try and duplicate what they're doing so I can see what's sort of happening inside the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I haven't, I haven't played any concerts really since uh, the last concert I played in 2001. I want to hear about the piece of music that you've written that sticks out to you. And this is an impossible question, I know, but forgive me for being an ignorant podcast host. Is there a couple of maybe one or two pieces of music that you've written that just stick out to you that like that was really profound and uh, they, they just sort of not not that you not that other stuff that you've written is um, <clears throat> of lesser quality, but maybe it just m- has more meaning to you personally, or maybe it uh, has touched someone in a profound way. Is, is there something that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, I, I would say so. The interesting thing is um, a number of my brass pieces are seem to be quite popular. They get a lot of recordings and everything, and they're played a lot. And I have pieces for orchestra or operas that I actually think are my best work, and and they hardly ever get played. Um, so as an example, I, uh, my second concerto for trumpet, which is for trumpet and orchestra, a very long piece, um, about 27 or 28 minutes long, which was written for Nick Norton, I think is is probably the strongest um, piece I've written just for instruments. I had just within about the past year or year and a half, I had a couple of really sort of moving experiences. Uh, one where I was in the audience and another where I just saw it um, online after the event. The first was the premiere of this piece called Magdalene, which was the cantata uh, the, uh, for orchestra and chorus and two soloists, narrator and obviously conductor. And, and um, it was narrated by a person who had been a part of this organization. She was a victim of, of sexual trafficking at the age of 17, prostitution, and finally was healed at the age of 57. That's 41 years. Or 58, I think it was. Yeah, 58. So it was 41 years. And she narrated this program, and uh, or the, the piece. She was the, the most beautiful person. Um, she was just great. And we're going to be doing the wind ensemble version, actually, at Rowan University in late April. And she will be narrating again. Uh, wow. This organization is called Magdalene uh, Thistle Farms. Uh, T-H-I-S-T-L-E Farms is the uh, sort of the parent organization. Many people from that organization were in the audience during the performance, and they were actually in tears. And so that was, that was for me, that was quite moving. And because when I wrote the piece, I thought, Okay, this you know this might get performed in Nashville, and that will be it. But it was something that I wanted to do because I thought the text was was so um, good and so strong. Um, but I think this is something that that these days um, could be performed around the world uh, in a way. Unfortunately, because of the problems that it represents. Um, and then just recently, <clears throat> I, I wrote this. It took about ten years to write uh, uh, an original uh, story that I wrote and libretto um, that takes as its subject the Holocaust. And it's nonspecific in terms of place or time, but it's based on, on the Nazi Holocaust. Kim Carballo, who uh, runs a program in Bloomington called ROI, Reimagining Opera for Kids. And she does programs for grades 1 through 6 and then 7 through 12. And she wants to do my Aesop's Fables, which is a children's a series of children's operas, very short children's operas, operas for one to six. But then grades seven through twelve 
she wanted to do this Holocaust opera. And this was the first time that I ever really argued against something. And I said, you know, I don't think this is appropriate mm. for um, for this age group because there's some deaths involved and, you know, it's about moral choices and all that. And she said, I think today something like this is very, very important. Mm. And so it was, she's been doing it all year, but they had a performance of this. And also it's a cut down version. So the, the original opera is like two and a half hours long and she's doing essentially a 40 to 45 minute presentation because of time. Um, but they did a version of this for, or they did this 45 minute version for the Holocaust week. And they had a panel afterwards, which was the uh, rabbi and a priest and a historian to discuss the work. And just listening to these brilliant people um, talk about the moral questions raised in this opera um, really, really struck me that that um, even though the opera took 10 years to write just for, for that discussion, it was it was worth it. <clears throat> Your music is not mainstream but it has to feel good to be taken seriously by serious people. Yeah, yeah. I think, in a way, I think my music sort of is mainstream because I'm uh, I'm not a really avant-garde composer. I mean, compared to a lot of composers uh, today, my, my music is probably quite conservative. But, uh, so I don't know. I'm not sure what I am. I mean, if, if I had to describe <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I, I could do it, but hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm evolving. Yeah. And well, what, I, what I meant by mainstream is like you're not on the homepage of Spotify.com. That's what I'm no, talking about. No, that's not me. That's not me. So. Actually, my, my brother-in-law said, hey, you're on, it was, it's not Spotify, but, oh, Pandora, I think. He said, oh. oh, hey, there's a channel for you on Pandora, and I didn't even know what that was. And so he said, <laughs> to me, and half, and half of the pieces were like, cell, you know, were, half of the CDs were like Celli, uh, concerto for concerti for Celli and things like that. You had nothing to do with me at all. So, um, yeah, I'd say in that, in that regard, I'm not main, mainstream, not even close. But your your music is listenable. Like your, uh, the average concert goer can listen to one of your pieces and say, "Hey, that's a nice piece of music." Yeah, I hope so. I mean, obviously, there are always going to be people who enjoy a piece and people who don't enjoy a piece. But yeah, I think I think it is listenable. Enjoyed what you said about the kids. Uh, like you sort of objected to that, and then this person said, "No, no, 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 no. They they need to hear this. They need to hear this story." And it's funny how we don't give kids the credit that. Maybe they deserve. We want to uh, say, well, you can't handle this. Yeah. But in fact, yeah. they can handle it. Yeah, they can. And the interesting thing Trumpet was, players, on the other hand, we're still we're <laughs> concerned about them. <laughs> yeah, actually, I just saw a quote from uh, from my teacher, Tom Stevens. And this was uh, a trumpet player had this on his, I think, on his Facebook site where it showed him getting a lesson from Tom. And the quote from Tom was, just because you're a trumpet player doesn't mean you have to be stupid. <laughs> so... <laughs> That, that's a pretty good quote, I think. Um, but because. when when this opera was premiered, the person who got me started on this subject, and I, and I did a lot of reading on it, um, met me in Bloomington, and we went to several high schools and talk, he talked about the opera. Basically, he, he talked about it because he's made a lifelong study of, of the concentration camps and the Holocaust and um, all the genocides that have taken place. And he spoke to the high school students about this, and younger students even, and it was it was great hearing him talk about it and seeing the students respond. I have you heard of a composer by the name of Kim Andre Arneson? No, I haven't. Okay, there. Cool story behind this. Uh, the Saint Olaf Choir in Minnesota. Oh yeah, right. Great, yeah. wonderful choir. They were commissioned by the um, Saint Olaf Society 
<clears throat> with whom this college is associated because of the name. They commissioned this Norwegian composer, Kim Andre Arneson, to put words to, uh, I'm sorry, to put to a poem that was written in a Jewish concentration camp in the Holocaust uh-huh. in, in Germany. And uh, beautiful, really simple words. It was, uh, the words are, I believe in the sun when it's not shining. I believe in love when I feel it not. And I believe in God even when he is silent. And uh, just YouTube, just go to YouTube and type in when he is silent. And that's the first thing you're going to see is the St. Olaf, uh, the premiere performance of this. And it's extremely, wow, brings me to tears. I've listened to it a hundred times and it brings me to tears. When, so when he, when he is silent, okay. And the composer's name is Kim Andre Arneson. Okay, wonderful, uh, moving experience. Just to watch it on YouTube, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that stuff is is really moving. That's for sure. And the thing about it is that you're <coughs> right. It's it's unfortunate that these are these are the pieces that are the most meaningful. That they're sort of talking about these really horrific things that have happened and that are happening. But on the other hand, it's like the fact that it moves us to tears, like decent people, the fact that shows me personally that there is, there are people who care about this and they're, they they are horrified by what's going on. And, you know, Mm -hmm. those people that, that uh, perpetrate those things, they are definitely in the minority when music that is written to, um, to shed light on these things gets so much attention. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I'm looking at your repertoire, 18 pieces for trumpet, so must be your favorite instrument. Brass quintet, wind ensemble, brass band, that's a good one. Just a few. I, I wrote a piece called Veloce. I only have two pieces, if I remember correctly. And then just recently, I wrote a, uh, a trumpet concerto number three uh, for Rex Richardson that he just recently recorded. And it should be out pretty soon. Uh, I would say probably um, four sketches for brass quintet or three miniatures for two band piano. They seem to both seem to get a lot of performances. What's it like uh, to hear one of your performances performed live? Uh, it's it's great. It's a different experience when when the piece has been performed before. Right. Um, when it's a premiere, actually the premiere. <laughs> is Hey, it's the first rehearsal that's nerve-wracking for me because before the first rehearsal, I don't know if the piece is any good or not, if it's if it's a larger group where that's the first time I hear the piece. And so that's sort of nerve-wracking because there are certain changes you can make with dynamics or maybe change a few notes, but if the piece is not very good, there's only so much you can do before the first performance. And then you have to sit through the first performance knowing that you, know, you have a work that's not so good. Um, but normally it's fun. You have to have higher stand or different standards than people listening to the piece because people listening they'd be like, "Wow, that's that's nice," but inside you're thinking, "No, it's not. It's actually not so nice." Yeah, I think I think probably anybody who does in, any sort of creative endeavor, um, and also I mean I think this has to go f- with playing too. Uh, you you see things that are not good that you could have done better, and and I think <clears throat> when I think back on my career as a trumpet player. I usually remember the concerts more than the good concerts. I think Billie Jean King, and this is not a direct quote, um, but it's something like this, which is uh, winning is temporary and losing is forever. That's pretty gruesome. But but there is a tendency, I think, to see what you've done wrong. And in a way, that's good, because then, then the next time around, you can try and make it better. I remember when I was in drum corps, one quote that has stuck out to me. This is... I. 
did drum corps in 1994. And the section leader, <clears throat> I played the mellophone, and uh, his name is Brian Collicott. Mm-hmm. And one thing that he said that I remember to this day is, after a show, if I can remember anything from the show, or what did he say? He says, if I can't remember anything from the show, then it was a good show. And what he meant by that is, if I, if I remember something, it means that I made a mistake. And that yeah. sticks with him. Yeah. And, and if he can't remember anything, then that means that you had a good show. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think that's just sort of human nature in a way. Yeah, we want to m- maximize our mistakes and really focus on those when, in fact, people listening to us, they, they're like, oh, that was a nice piece. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was yeah. perfect. <laughs> I mean, I've had times when I thought I played um, really well and I heard a tape of the concert. And thought, if, if, in fact, I remember one time when I thought I did something really musical and uh, it was just flat as a pancake. Uh, and, and then other times when I've had friends that I really trust who will tell me the truth where I thought I didn't play very well. And they said, you know, it's fine. I didn't, you know, so I think we tend to, um, how would we say, blow, blow up the, the, we make too much of a difference between what we feel is good and what we feel is bad. And no, normally they're fairly close together, unless you really have a catastrophe or really play great. Well, I've been, I've had, been on both ends of the spectrum. I've had playing well and catastrophes. I think yeah. we all have. Yeah, I sure have. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else that has to get covered in this interview? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Do you need to hear more funny anecdotes? <laughs> well, I'll look, I'll look for another one on your uh, Skype site. Although okay. I think the skydiving one is good. Let me leave you with this. If Barbie okay. is so popular, why do we have to buy her friends? Tony Plogue is my guest. Find him online at anthonyplogue.com and um, go check out his music. He's got samples available. If you ever get the opportunity to uh, perform one of his pieces, you will not be disappointed, even though Tony may disagree. Tony, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the podcast. This has been a blast. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode and will be in your earballs soon.